there's no cause without capital, and capital is what fuels it. Hi, I'm Joel Pilger, and you're listening to episode 58 of the Rev Thinking Podcast. Today is another episode in our series, Profile of the Creative Entrepreneur, with my guest, Chris Doe. Welcome to Rev Thinking, the podcast for creative entrepreneurs who know the best way to deal with the future is to create it. This is the conversation between creative leaders and consultants, discussing what it really takes to run a thriving creative business. Hello from New York, or uh, more accurately, I'm in Brooklyn today, actually working with the amazing, awesome people at Ant Food. So if my voice sounds particularly luscious, would that be the proper term, Wilson? Yeah. Luscious? We'll go with luscious. Rich. Rich and full. It's because I'm actually speaking into a true professional microphone in a true sound recording studio. So that's great. But uh, thanks to the, to the folks here for accommodating me. Today's episode is an interview I've been wanting to do for a long time with my buddy, Chris Doe. A lot of you might know Chris from the future, but of course he also runs a motion design studio called Blind. And the interview is going to be great. Uh, first, a few quick announcements. Let me just mention that cohort, uh, for those of you that are aware of our evening masterminds that we do with your fellow owners. Our next one is going to be in London on January 17th, which of course is the kickoff of that chapter in London. I'm personally very excited about that one. And not only because it's London, which is one of my favorite cities, but our featured guest is going to be Blair Enns of Win Without Pitching. And in my world, he's kind of a celebrity, kind of a rock star. Uh, If you know Blair, If you've read Win Without Pitching Manifesto, then you know exactly who I'm talking about. He'll be there on the 17th. So for those of you, uh, you know, in UK, in Europe, mainland, we've already heard a few of you reaching out and saying you want to come. So uh, please reach out and let us know if you're interested. Uh, New York and Los Angeles dates for next year are soon to be announced. So we're going to be having quarterly evening masterminds with dinner in those cities as well throughout the year, which is going to be great. I am also featured soon on a School of Motion podcast. I got interviewed by Joey from School of Motion, and that episode should be going live any day now, so keep an eye out for that, and we'll certainly post a link once we hear of it going live. And then I'm also going to mention that the next Jumpstart Accelerator is going to happen launching late January. So if you're interested in Jumpstart, go to RevThing.com and take a look and see what's coming up in that next Accelerator. Okay, to today's episode. My friend Chris is someone I met, I think maybe five or six years ago when I was still running my studio. And he and I both were at the Motion Conference in Santa Fe as speakers. And I had only heard about Chris. I had actually competed against his studio, Blind, which is a motion design studio, and lost. (laughs) So he was in a way sort of an enemy, but we got acquainted as speakers at the Motion Conference, and we just kind of hit it off and started a a friendship. And this was right around the time when Chris was just starting to get into teaching and speaking in public. And we talk about that story in the episode. But shortly thereafter, he started doing what is now called The Future, where he's created this education platform that is really teaching the next generation of designers and freelancers and other people, creative people, of how to run their own business. So I uh, really use this interview as an opportunity to ask Chris about his journey from where he started and of course his years of running blind, but what is the 
What's the genesis behind the future? How did that get started? And where's he going with it? And how does it all work together? So I hope you enjoy this interview with Chris Dale. So no, dude, I was thinking, do you remember we were in Bend for the Bend Design Mm -hmm. Conference and we were both speaking and I told you the story of when you and I actually competed against each other back in the day. Do you remember that? I do remember that. And you actually told me that story before, but until you told me decades or years earlier, I had no clue. Well, it's funny because I, this is the moment when I have to like honestly admit that I was well aware that you were my competitor, but you probably had no clue who I was or even who my studio was. <laughs> so that's just, <laughs> you're like, oh, hmm, okay, no, I don't no. know what to do with that. <laughs> no, that's not that because I know you or don't know you, but a lot of times it's one of our philosophies. It's like we compete against ourselves. It's a dangerous game to start looking into what your competitors are doing. You start to second guess yourself. So usually uh, I will ask my reps, do you know how many people are bidding on this? And they say, yes, it's two, it's three, it's 10. I'm out of it's 10. So our, yeah. our limit's like three to four and that's it. And then you just decide like, hey, what company are we keeping? It's more like, man, are, are they just all over the place? Or are they just picking all cell animation companies and we're the one non-cell company? So we use it as more of a strategic thing. That's it. No, I mean, I love that. The, the reason, mm-hmm. I, just for the audience benefit, yeah. the reason I, I share that story at all is that when I was running Impossible and you were running Blind, I was actually very much of the same opinion. Mm-hmm. My business partner was the guy that was always really pissed off and checking out the competition mm-hmm. and, oh, we should have beat them and we should have gotten that job. But the only reason I knew about you was because I was having coffee with this client of mine from Discovery Channel. And I'm like, oh, what have you been up to? And he goes, oh, we're doing this really cool spot. Check this out. And he shows me the work. And I was like, damn, that's really good. Who is that? <laughs> he was like, oh, it's Blind. And I was like, oh, those bastards. Because <laughs> that was the job that we had competed against? Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> it was something for Bear Grylls, right? Yes. Something, yeah. It, it was this comic book style animated thing. And right, I, remember I, remember thinking, I remember thinking, damn, we would have never come up with that, much less been able to execute that. So that's mm-hmm. why I was mad. Well, you're very generous. You know, the <laughs> thing is, in terms of uh, looking into your competition, uh, People believe in doing opposition research, right? And I just, mm-hmm. I just don't, I'm not into it. Some of my creative directors are all about that. And it just feels like, Ugh, what are you doing? Should we focus on what the story is and building a relationship and not worry too much about what others are doing? Well, this is, I so think, it's kind of funny. Yeah. I mean, maybe in a way this gets to sort of the heart of the creative entrepreneur, because mm-hmm. if you, well, I'll just say this. I believe that if you're going to be successful, you really do have to have an inner vision and a drive and a why that's not determined by anything external or by mm-hmm. the marketplace. And I'm guessing that that's true of you. Like when you started blind, you weren't saying, oh, I want to create work just like those guys, but be better than them and beat them. It was like, no, I want to go create great work. That's, that's my work. That's my, yeah. my why or whatever. Is that true? hundred percent true. And I, the funny thing is I would meet some of our quote unquote competitors and they were very much the opposite. They were like eyeballing us up and down, giving us the, the F you look, you know, it's the like, what, guy. You, what? Yeah. What are you doing? You know, there's enough work for everybody. Right. Yes. And it got really petty. So it's just turned me off, you know? Like, why, why do you have to be like that? And that, and the, so here's what's funny. I'm, you're telling me that that even happens in a major market like Los Angeles. 100%. That cracks me up. 100%. Just blows tell my you, mind. To the level of pettiness it gets to. We're invited to go and hang out with a rival company um, and play foosball against them. And if, for whatever reason, everybody likes to play foosball. And at that time, I was playing quite a bit. 
when we got together, we were playing and I wasn't taking it that seriously. And when they won, they're like trash talking us and just it was like a bunch of frat dudes like banging their chests together, like drinking beer. It's like, oh, OK, oh, this is where we're at. Interesting. Right. Well, yeah. my version of that was my business partner was at a party that one of our competitors was throwing and he and the owners of that company almost got into a fight in the parking lot. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm like, what are you talking about? Guys, it's just business. Right. So wow. that does exist. This, this kind of beef. Oh yeah. Uh, motion owner kind of company beef. It, it is real. And, and people have animosity and I've been on the other end of like people throwing negative things. I mean, I'm like, wow. Okay. I didn't even know, man, how long you've been living with that hate in your heart. Mm. Well, so when you're looking back, mm-hmm. okay. And when you first, when you first started blind, cause I know some of your story, like you and I've become, I would say pretty good friends over the mm-hmm. past five, four or five years. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know if I know the actual why, like when you said, I'm going to start blind, I'm going to start my mm-hmm. own company. What was sort of the driving thing there? I'm going to tell you this. I think I'm, I'm a young hustler, meaning that when when my parents and I, we came to this country as first generation immigrants, we didn't have a lot. And it's just like when you don't have something, you want it even more. And mm. I just knew that though we had plenty, we had love, supporting, loving parents. We had all that we ever needed, roof, shelter, food. We never went hungry. It's one of those things where I always had that look like, oh, I wonder how the Joneses are keeping up. You know, like, why don't we have these things? And, and just because we had lost everything when we fled Vietnam, I think my parents' attitude towards things and money changed drastically. And they say that about a lot of people who live through the depression or something like that, where right. they hold on to things really tightly. So for the most part, when I grew up, I always thought we were poor forever. And then later on, I remember my parents filling out an application about their salaries and their savings. I was just blown away. I was like, wow, we don't live like that. We don't. <laughs> So ever since I was young, I just wanted to make my own way. So whether I was like 11, just looking for a job, something to do, sell or make, sometimes it was art and sometimes it was just making little knickknacks, just figuring out how to make money. It wasn't until I went to design school that I was like, wow, this is really what I need to be doing to make money. So instead instead of selling candy or insurance or whatever it is I wanted to, to do to make a buck, it's like, no, I can actually do the thing that I love, my passion, my hobby, and turn that into a business. So I was just an entrepreneur waiting to find a business to to run. So what I'm hearing there is when you come from sort of a, I don't know, from an upbringing where there was risk, there was danger, there was loss, there was, you know, like you said, depression era, people experienced this, that when you came to the States, you suddenly realized maybe there's more out there for me. And you were looking for almost that brass ring to reach out and take hold of. Yeah, I think so. I like, and I lived in a fa- like a fantasy world. I would flip through magazines like Sunset Magazine, like, oh, is this like the California lifestyle? It's like, <laughs> why don't we live like that? Why doesn't our furniture look like that? You know, and that's what I started thinking about. And I, w- I was thinking like, how do I get myself in a position where I can live like that? And I would just daydream all all the time. Mm. I would flip through GQ magazine when I was sixteen years old, thinking, wow that guy has a sharp suit and look at that cardigan, look at those shoes. It's just those socks go and, and just knowing very well, that's far out of my reach. Tim Thompson and I often talk about these kind of one of these three things that generally drives owners and that is fame mm-hmm. or fortune or freedom. And sometimes I, I chuckle cause I always say, well, Hey, for me, it was all three. Um, that's just me being of course, somewhat facetious, mm-hmm. but in a way, I think as you go through your career, it is about those 
three things in different ways at different times. And maybe for you in those early stages, it was, maybe it was a freedom thing of like, what's possible? Could I possibly actually be this person, live this way, create this kind of lifestyle for me and have that freedom to do that? Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't even really know what it is and it might be freedom, but I just don't think my feet were planted on the ground. I'm the middle child, right? So I didn't get the attention of the firstborn or the attention of the lastborn. So I'm just kind of floating out there and I would just read comics and lose myself in the world of fantasy. I'd play video games and kind of just imagine all these things. And the great thing about my parents, uh, one, it was kind of a philosophical way of bringing us up, which was just kind of let sleeping dogs lie. They didn't really get involved too much unless we were acting totally out of control, which we didn't do very much. Coupled with the fact that they were both working parents, we're latchkey kids. So I got to do lots of crazy things, get on my bike, go to my friend's house and just disappear for, for hours. My parents didn't even know where I was, you know? So that was kind of the freedom. So I was just floating out there. I wasn't grounded by what you can and can't do and what's really possible. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm thinking I, I have some similarities in my upbringing as well, so I can mm -hmm. relate. And I remember the, just those years of where my parents were kind of like, hey, do what you love. The money will follow. We're here to support you. And as long as you're not like doing drugs or something, yeah. it's all good. Just go nuts. And that was a really actually sort of nurturing environment, even though they weren't really active per se in, in my day-to-day -day existence. But as I got older and I started to mm -hmm. become more crazy and have dreams and ambitions and like, Hey, I want to start a company. My dad was like, great, go for it. You need to borrow a little money. I'm here for you. That kind mm -hmm. of thing. So it's, I, I always find it interesting when I talk to entrepreneurs and especially creative entrepreneurs that somehow their upbringing and their parents, even their extended network of family is always part of that story. And that yeah. sounds like it's totally true of you as well. Yeah. And I, and I think my parents were a little different, obviously, being first generation Asian American immigrants. It wasn't like, do whatever you want, follow your heart. It was like, no, get it, go to school, get a respectable job doing this thing. But they didn't actually have the operating system on how to do that. So mm. the culture and everything about America was very different for us as I was growing up here. Right. And I came here at a very young age. So it's, I don't know another place, but I wasn't born here. But so for them, it was just like, Maybe just out of kind of not having instruction, just kind of let us figure things out. So they didn't really pollute us with all their old ideas. Right. And right. So well, it's like the same result, right? Yeah. They wouldn't have translated anyways, right? Because right. the story would have always been, well, in Vietnam, it was like this. But yeah, right. we're in America now. The rules have changed. Right. So now how, how long, what year was it when you founded Blind? How many years have you been mm. running we, this now? We Almost 20? No more than that. We've officially incorporated in December of 1995, which was stupid because I paid basically franchise tax and then I had to do it again next year. Somebody told me like, hey, just wait till January. You're good. So we actually operated before that point in time. So it was late summer uh, going into fall. And I think it was like at that point, I decided to stop working freelance and just start this business. And then eventually I tried to make it legitimate by incorporating, right? So December, 1995 is when we started and we've been running ever since. So it's 23, what is it? 23 years? 23 years. Man, yeah. what's so interesting is I just think back to how completely different the world was. Because yeah. in 1995, like if we're honest, things like motion design, even as a phrase, yeah. didn't really exist. No, it did not exist at all. Isn't that so weird? 
Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> and do you know, do you remember one of the early pioneers of desktop video? His name is Flavio Campa, CampaVision. Is that name? Oh, well, no, I know, I know CampaVision. Yeah. Yeah. So it started by this Italian designer who's living out here named Flavio Campa. And he was using, of all things, Premiere. And he was in doing video space. And back then, everybody that was doing video and animation was working on a Henry or a Harry or something like that. Quantel. Yep. How? Yeah. Stuff. So it's like mm -hmm. basically a million dollar paint box that would allow you to do video. And he was hacking all kinds of things together using some kind of like, I just don't remember the video card, like a vision video card and doing Premiere and just because he was getting into the design. So he was one of the early pioneers and it looked very like broadcasty, you know, not filmic, yep. but yep. that was who was doing it. And so people were a little surprised, like, yeah, you could do this work and it doesn't have to be a million dollar paint box. Well, it's weird. I, I It's hard for people to appreciate, right? How mm -hmm. in 93, Three ninety four. everything was actually still optical on some level or another. And this yes. whole transition to digital, people just kind of think, well, yeah, everything was always sort of digital from the start. It's like, no, it was being done in film and you were shooting and you're using lights and all of these optical tricks that you would do. And then I remember I was at Georgia Tech in the early 90s and worked on one of the first, there was this thing called a Silicon Graphics Workstation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm and familiar I'm, with that. Yeah, of course you are. You know that era. And mm -hmm. that was when everything was changing because all of a sudden this idea that you could use a computer to generate animation or 3D or graphics or whatever was totally brand new. So we're we're totally giving away our age now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just for context, people need to understand this. An SGI box, Silicon Graphics box, a decent one, like an Octane, I think that's what it was called. It was a newer box. I think that box was like $35,000 for the machine. And well, then I'll, it costs... I'll, I'll one better you than that yeah. because the very first one I worked on was one of the original Flames, which was on a 440 VGXT. <laughs> I don't, I don't even know what that is. That. <laughs> All I know is this thing was literally the size of a full-size refrigerator. Yes. Yeah, it was just ginormous and it had to have its own... 220 volt power supply and its own air conditioned room and all this yeah. stuff. Um, but of course that was one of the first flames mm -hmm. and what we could do with that was just mind blowing at the mm -hmm. time, utterly mm -hmm. mind blowing. But that thing I think was a $250,000 computer yeah. and that didn't even include the software. Yeah. Well, do you know what's sad? I actually own a flame. Oh, I, well, I own several and, and I, 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 I basically just sent them to the recycling, you know, facility years later and yeah. cause you couldn't sell them and you have hundreds of thousands of dollars of gear. And, yeah. But no, I feel your pain. Yeah. When you look back now, okay. So mm -hmm. this is what year 23. Have you yeah. been able to, when you look back, are you able to recognize the seasons, the trends, the, yeah, there was kind of those those first five or seven years. And then there was this season where we got into the 2000s. And what are some of the big patterns that you've sort of witnessed change, not just in the industry, but just more like as you've been running a business? Because I know mm -hmm. it's changed over the years for you as the owner. Yeah, I, I say this and I think this term sometimes gets overused, but we've had to reinvent our company many, many times. And so I think we've lived all four seasons in chunks at a time. And mm -hmm. I would say like every four or five years, we had to reinvent ourselves because we started to get locked into a position. And although we were kind of riding that crest, I just knew that this cannot be it for us. So in the very beginning, because all of this stuff is self-taught, like I didn't learn motion design from anybody. Yeah. I, I went to school to study graphic design. And so at, in the very beginning, we were just thrilled to do basically title animations like for car spots like 
this many down, that percent APR and this many payments. I right? did a lot of those. That's what we were doing yeah. those, right? So, yeah. and we had an advantage because we actually knew design so we could typeset this and we use After Effects in its most basic way to kind of just give them a little bit of life so they're not so boring. And we then we, we grew into doing animated end tags for commercials. So those mm. little buttons that happen at the end of a commercial. And we did quite a few of those and they're very lucrative, but very. we're looking around and it's like, is this it for us? No, we want to do full spots. We don't want to just work on a little part. And so each time it's like, okay, how are we going to do that? So we have to form a plan and we would work on that. And so here's the thing, if you're an entrepreneur and you haven't experienced all those four seasons, and I would assume the winter is like when you kind of rest and, and kind of look back and maybe it starts to get a little dark, is, is before that happens, I think in the summer and the fall, you better be preparing for what's next. And I would say that these cycles come and go, I think anywhere between three to five years. So I know like the point in which we made the most money, then the very next year was the point in which we made the least money. Mm-hmm. That's common actually, which yeah. is hard to appreciate when you're running your own business, right? Because you're just head down yeah. doing your thing and you don't really know that there's actually some common tendencies there because you make mm-hmm. a lot of money, you kind of take your eye off the ball, the industry shifts a little bit on you and then you wake up and go, wait, what just happened? Yeah. If you're not paying attention, it looks like it happens all of a sudden. But if you're paying attention, it's happening in little bits all the time. So you only realize it when the boat crashes into the iceberg, like, oh, we hit something, right? And we can see trends. Like the last big trend that we had to go through was this, is that it's the decline of commercial advertising because nobody watches TV anymore in the way they used to. You can use your DVR and skip everything. And so what are people making commercials for anyways when there are more viable and cheaper and more effective alternatives to doing TV advertising? So five, six years ago, we could see that already happening because I just asked my staff, who here has a TV? Like nobody. All the young people, <laughs> they just stream content. So that means they're, they're not watching these commercials. So that's when I'm like running up to the tower, ringing the alarm bells like, hey, everybody wake up. You know, this is what's going to happen. This is our livelihood. And it seems like this is going to go on forever, but I can see this. It's going to decline. And people didn't believe me. So what did you, what was the answer or what was the, at least the, the idea you had of how are we going to continue to pivot? Because that reinvention process yes. you described, you know, of every three to five years, mm-hmm. um, my guess is that probably accelerated. Like I bet nowadays it feels like every two to three years, not three to five. It could be. And, and so I'm kind of slightly removed from the service design world now. And it feels like I'm not paying attention to it anymore. So I, I'm not as concerned. Right, mm-hmm, we could talk mm-hmm. about that later if you want, but yeah, sure. Yeah, so no, what, what happens is when you see the uh, the signs, the writing on the wall, so to speak, you need to act and you need to try lots of things, and there's not going to be an easy answer. And so the first thing we we tried to do was to redefine how we see ourselves. So if we said to ourselves, "We're a motion design uh, production company," then we're only looking for motion design work that fit a very specific box. So we had to broaden that definition out to say, you know what, we're great storytellers and image makers. So if you need an image that catches somebody's attention and you want to do it in a visual way, we're we're your guys. So Mm -hmm. we try to do like explainer videos, corporate videos, and none of that work because they're actually quite related. And it wasn't until we started to figure out like, you know what, let's keep going a level higher and higher. And it was very painful because you have to learn new skills. Then I started to learn about UX design and brand strategy. Then I just dove in on that. And then it's like, wow, all of a sudden we have this whole new revenue stream, a whole different kind of clientele, different services to provide them. And it felt really great and it felt very invigorating. Wow. 
Now, you said something really interesting because I'm curious if I if I heard you right. Mm -hmm. You said we had to almost evolve our offering because here's what I'm wondering: is this is it was this your experience that in a way the services, the skills, the things that you know maybe made Blind successful early on over the years did those things become commoditized? And then you essentially said, well, we got to figure out how do we, how do we merge these things to create something greater that's more like not just services, but more like disciplines and strategies, because that's where the greater value lies. Mm-hmm. Well, let me put it this way in kind of anecdotal form. And I think the answer will reveal itself. Way back in the day, we were working in car commercials and we had something like 36 titles to do. And basically that's because there's different regions and different languages, right? So for different parts of the country, you have to change the APR and the deals and the legal copy and it's fine. So back mm-hmm. then we we're animating things in After Effects and people are going to fall out of chair when they hear this. But I remember figuring out a price, something like, let's charge something like $4,000 per title animation. So when 36 of them came in, I'm like, fantastic. And you, you know this about After Effects is basically mm-hmm. you set up the animation template and you literally just drag option, swap out the file and you hit render. And that's $3,000. That's $4,000 each time I do that and hit render. Mm-hmm, sure. And so now people are thinking about that. Like, so you did 30 titles, white type on a black background, standard definition. You're paid $120,000. Ask yourself what kind of work you have to do today where a client can look at you with reasonable like intent and say, yeah, that seems fair. What do you have to do? You have to do visual effects maybe. You have to do a shoot with green screen. Yes. You have yeah. to do compositing. Oh my God. Well, maybe you even have to do something else called, we don't even, we don't know how we're going to solve this problem. So you have to come up with the entire creative and the concept. Oh yeah. All right. Or this is the more the agency question. And I'm, I'm curious if this is part of where blind has evolved is sometimes you're actually helping the client even come up with the questions. A hundred percent. We've seen that. We, we, and so, that's a totally different skill set. It's very different than, you know, rendering, uh, ver- doing versioning and tagging and after effects. Yeah. So I want to say this to my fellow motion graphics entrepreneurs out there, whether you're a solopreneur or you're running a, a big firm. I think sometimes we envision ourselves as the, the top of the food chain. We're the shark hunting a tuna or some other creature in the sea to eat. But in fact, we're, we're just like the little sucker fish that hang on the bottom of the shark. So after the shark eats and the little bits that he can't clean off, you're sitting there sucking up those bits. And to realize <laughs> that. So if you say, well, who are the sharks? And the sharks might be the advertising agency. And what's happening is their food supply is gone. So what's happened, and and if you want to just snap back a little bit, is brands have gotten really smart. They went and raided the agency for talent, a brain drain or drain of the brain, right? So they're just going to go in there and they're going to suck in people. And they're going to say, why don't you be the brand manager? You know how to lead creative teams. You know how to work with freelance operations, whether it's an agency, a smaller agency or not. So they started to lose accounts. They, they started losing agency of record. They lost media buy because it was very expensive. And that's where they made most of their money. They would mark up the media buy. Now, what's left there for us? So if the shark, the great white that we're on, is very anemic at this point, hasn't fed for a really long time, you have to sit there and say, what do we do and still attach this thing? called advertising. Yes. Is there a future for us? And so that's the problem. A lot of people who have been in the industry for a really long time are holding on really tight. They haven't eaten either. And that's when I'm like, you know what? I'm letting go. I'm going to go and find something else. Maybe we'll become vegetarian. I don't know. 
Well, this is, I, so I, I can see almost our conversation here bifurcating because there's a, there's a future of, I'm, I'm hearing blind pivoting mm-hmm. and evolving into becoming maybe more agency-esque, more brand direct. Mm-hmm. But then there's also at some point in this narrative, there's this idea called the future. Yeah. Are those, are those two, call it transition points, are they related? Are they connected? They are connected, but they're quickly diverging. And you're very astute. You're, you're totally right, right? So Blind yeah. has to pivot hard out of doing commercial production and motion graphics because there's not that much work there in our experience. You might have a different reality. Good for you. Keep doing it. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we pivoted, you're right, to becoming a digital agency, a full-service brand design consultancy. And we're working with clients directly now. So now we've become the agency. And in order to do that, we had to acquire the skills and the processes that agencies have. And that's fine. We're doing that. The other is that, company- Is that fun? <laughs> it is fun for a while. It is fun because it feels like you are more in control. You can make more impact and you're more valued by the client. And you get into move into this place where you don't have to pitch anymore. You get to become an agency of record in some instances, or at least there's repeat work that they don't make you sit there and jump through hoops all the time. Yeah, sure. It's a very it's different con- world. It's very, it's much more consultative, I'm guessing. Yes, it is. And it, it's mm-hmm. like, they just call you up and say, hey, we got a new thing. You want to work on that? Yeah, that sounds cool. We got this kind of budget. Yeah, that works. Well, it, and it can also, I think, be fun when you're going to the client and saying, hey, we understand the vision of where you're trying to go and we see an opportunity. We want to help create this thing for you. And they say, wow, we didn't even see that. That sounds really cool. Let's go mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And I've always loved the idea of what's more fun than you come up with the idea and you pitch it to your client and they say, sweet, here's a big check. Can you go make that thing? Yeah. Now that's a somewhat idealized. That's uh, a very nice position, it, right? Yes. If you're but, there, but as, yeah, I mean, as a dream, that's kind of, that's pretty it's cool. It's a good dream. Yeah. Yeah. And I've only had that experience with one client really where we're that tight. And I'm like, I saw something and you guys might want to consider doing something like this, whether it's with us or somebody else. And they're like, oh yeah, wow. But that that's like a deep relationship you have to have and you have to earn their trust and mm-hmm. you have to hold their interests above yours. And if you could do that, these kind of relationships can emerge. But for the most part, we're not calling up our clients like, hey, yeah, we thought about this thing. You guys yeah. want to do this? Because it doesn't exist like that, at least for most of our clients. Well, let's, let's just point out what maybe the macro or, or meta of what you mm-hmm. just described. And that is even having the potential or the opportunity to have a conversation with a client like that only happens in place where there's trust. And it also happens with a brand that would never happen with an ad agency. And it would probably never happen even with like an entertainment company or a TV network, that kind of thing, because it's just a different nature. They kind of know what they want. They know what they're trying to do. They just need you because you're the vendor. Whereas the brands are, it's kind of the wild west. I find it, it's somewhat of an immature market. So there's opportunities for a company like Blind to say, hey, there's thousands of companies around the world that all are evolving to become content networks in some form or another. Who do we want to go talk to? Who, who are we excited about solving problems for? Yeah. Um, so that seems to be the, the future in terms of where the greenest grass lies these days. Yeah. It's not, I, I, I would just say like, it's very unlikely that that's going to happen in the broadcast agency world. Maybe not impossible, right. but I'm not a gambler. There's a 0.01% chance of that working. I'm just not going to go there. Risk and yeah, reward. Sure. It's just too much risk, very low reward. 
And you have to think about it. Think about the structures of agencies and networks. They have creative directors, writers, producers. They have a marketing team. And you represent a potential conflict for them. If they lean on you too heavy, then they can't justify their own existence. So mm -hmm. there's some problems there. Whereas when you work with brands directly, they're used to working with outside vendors because a lot of companies, multi-billion dollar companies don't have a giant marketing department. They have operations, they have technology, but that's not their core competency. It's only within the broadcast and advertising space where your skills overlap quite a lot. I totally hear that. And it's, it's surprising. I think it was even shocking to me. I talked to some person that was high up in Target mm -hmm. and I was asking them, you know, what are the big agencies you work with? And he was like, oh yeah, we have AOR with all these big WPP, Omnicom, call mm -hmm. them Madison Avenue agencies, right? And I was like, oh wow, there's six of them. That's a lot. And he said, oh, no, no, we work with over 200 agencies. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wait, wait, wh huh? What do you mean? He said, we are so comfortable now working with the micro agencies, the niche agencies. Like we're fine with working with a motion design studio. Like that, yeah. was, that was weird 20 years ago. Today, no problem. We have hundreds of those people because we need all these little experts and all these little niches and corners and certain expertises. And I thought, well, gosh, that's a great that bodes well for the future of working with brands. Yeah. So tell me, go, go back to the bifurcation because yes. I'm curious to maybe drill down a little more on this moment. Was there yes. actually a moment when sort of, okay, blind is going to be pivoting and evolving, but there's also this other dream mm -hmm. that I, that I have. Mm -hmm. Am I, am I saying, I don't know if I'm characterizing it properly, Yeah. But there's, there's this genesis of the future. Yes. And there is a crossover because initially there was one road and then the road diverged. And I want to give credit to my friend, Jose Caballero, who is mm -hmm. a art center classmate of mine. And I had just been, I, I ran into him kind of at a board meeting at AIGA and we're talking. I said, Hey, Jose, I pulled him to the side. It's like, I've been working on some websites and it's just really difficult. Like I thought this is the future, but I'm not enjoying this process at all. And his eyes lit up like, Oh man, I can help you. He's like, will you please? He's like, I'll show you. All you have to do is find me a client and I'll do it with you for you for free. <laughs> and that's when I was able to jump head into this whole different process of working with clients. And he'd come from the web world, right? And he had been in that digital space as long as I've been in the motion space. So I got to watch a master at work and understand his process and he developed some tools. And one of the things that he encouraged me to do, because we we're working on some projects together, let's get on YouTube, let's make content. And that's the farthest thing from my mind in terms of like, yeah, no, I don't want to do that. I'm a behind the camera guy. I'm not in front of the camera. Yeah, he goes, sure. no, 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 you need to do this because we got to build awareness and we can talk. And I said, I, I don't know what I'm going to say, man. This is not something that I see myself doing. I'm, I'm awkward and I just don't even like the way I sound, to be honest. He goes, look, I'll tell you what. He wasn't going to take no for an answer. So he's like, you could just sit there and the cameras will roll. And when you're comfortable, say something. If not, I will run the show. I'm like, okay, fine. That's pretty easy. So I sat there, literally claw, uh, jaws clench, you know, and, and just thinking about every word and just thinking, if a client were to see this, what would they think about me? <laughs> so I was looking at it from that lens. Yeah, a lot and of insecurity. I, I'm one to, you know, to be opinionated. So if I say something that just winds up on the internet and, you know, it's permanent, you think it's not permanent, but it only takes one kid to download it and it's game over. You can't un undo that, right? You can't unpour the water, it's done. So that's one of those things where I, I was really concerned about that kind of stuff, but eventually that grew into something and I found like, wow, 
well, for the first time in my adult kind of professional life that I can actually make videos just for me. No clients, no script supervisor, no storyboards. I can just do it the way I want to do it. And it dovetails really neatly into my other passion, which is teaching. So I've been teaching at that point at Art Center for about 15 years. And so I was thinking, wow, so YouTube could just be like me teaching? Well, this is fantastic. So let me figure out how to take on this new art form and teach in mass, staring at a piece of glass on a monitor. <laughs> and so that's what I worked on. Well, I'm laughing because, of course, I'm thinking of all the people right now in the world who are so, they don't know any other version of Christo than the guy that's on YouTube or in mm -hmm. their inbox every other day, right? Or they're right. watching some sort of a live stream because this is sort of who you are now. And it's mm -hmm. really amusing to think back that there was a time when this was all very foreign to you. But what I heard you say is you said, I love teaching. Yeah. And that leads to this question. Do you think your heart as a teacher, the or, you know, the thing inside you that wants to teach, is was that part of your journey in blind as well as being involved at Art Center as well as even, of course, it's a big part of the future. But that's just a really interesting thing because I'm thinking about, you know, I think a lot of creative entrepreneurs in their heart, they have a teacher thing inside of them that they want to let out because they're, they're always teaching their team. They're teaching their lead, mm -hmm. you know, leadership and they're, they're grow, trying to grow something. Is there something central to that teaching thing? I think so. I think there's a lot of overlap there. So when I was at art center, I learned things and I'm, I think I'm a pretty fast learner because the teacher would say something and I would get it the first time they said it. I didn't need to hear it five times. And so inevitably what happened was this is kind of a weird phenomenon for me is like while still taking the class, my classmates were asking for advice. Like we're in the exact same class together at the exact same time. So why is it that you want my input on your layouts or your design or your poster? And I started to develop a little bit of a reputation. People would come up to me. And so it's like, you know, shoot, now I'm helping more people than doing my own homework. And I have to be careful of that. And I got a little carried away there. So I was like, okay, and I always felt like, wow, I'm inspired by these professors. There's a handful of them that I was thinking, man, they have changed my life. What, what, what I wouldn't do to be able to do that for somebody else in turn, to kind of pay it forward. But I just didn't figure out, didn't have the confidence, like, how could I do this, right? Mm -hmm. And I started my company to run my company. And the way I ran it was, at the very beginning, I would get paid as if I was a freelancer. So they might pay me a thousand bucks a day or whatever it is. I needed to bring somebody else in to help me. And I did this very early, like the first two jobs I had, I, I brought in people to help. And they obviously didn't have the same skills. So there was a definite gap there. So what mm -hmm. I needed to do was to coach them so that they can do 80, 90% of the work without me so that I can just go in at the very end, put a couple of finishing touches on and be done. So that was kind of me training myself to be a teacher. I didn't think of it that way, but it was just really like, okay, if I, if I give you consistent feedback over time and tell you kind of what it is I'm looking for and also teach you techniques and things like that, then they get better, less handholding, less effort. So I think this is what it means to be a leader versus a manager, yes. right? So you have to sit there and you have to roll up your sleeves. You have to get there and you have to share and you have to be open. You have to be patient and you have to want to contribute to the betterment of the person and not just for yourself. And a lot of people are not equipped to do that. That's okay. So that's such an interesting perspective because I would say there's probably a, an image of the business owner out there 
that's very different than that, that people think, oh, when they think of a business owner, they almost think of a dictator, like somebody who just calls the shots and is running the show. But I've always found that at least the creative entrepreneurs that I work with, if you're not generous and if you're not teaching, if you're not building up others, then you're not, you're not successful. It just doesn't yeah. work that way. You can't sort of just be the guy that runs things and takes home the big check because you quote control the whole thing because who wants to be part of that? Yeah. And that sometimes is how companies are run, unfortunately. And I think I read this term in Tony Shea's book, Delivering Happiness. He's like, you need to be a good servant leader. Instead of sitting around and thinking, what are you going to do for me? I think you have to start thinking like, what can I do for you? Right? And Simon yeah. Sinek talks about this too in one of his talks. It's like, it's not that you're in charge, but it's you taking care of people in your charge. And that's what it means mm -hmm. to be a leader. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. So now this moment, I guess, happens. And how, I don't know if this was how many years ago this was, when blinds pivoting, becoming more agency, mm -hmm. more focused on brands, and that's a pivot. And then you're saying, hey, I'm starting to really enjoy this teaching and maybe this could be its own thing. What I'm curious to know is, did all of your experience in running blind, was it a sense, in a sense what you leveraged as you started to build the future or was it just, no, I'm doing, there's that over there and there's this, this over here and they're totally different and separate. Mm. I think that the answer is quite complicated and it's a little bit of both. So when we're making videos for YouTube, I'm using all the skills I acquired as a director and producer of moving content. And I'm also using space and equipment from blind to produce the content. Otherwise the future would have never been able to set foot in the way that it did. I'm also using the resources, my team, I would borrow people from the blind team and I would get in touch with people that knew about blind and didn't have any idea about the future. So we're kind of leveraging all those things over. But when it came to producing content, I'm not going to play by the same rules anymore. I'm not looking for <laughs> a, a creative director that's a client saying, yeah, more of this, less of that. So you have to be very self-directed and it's hard to do that. I'm not going to lie to you because you don't put in the same effort for yourself that you do for a paying client. And we're aware of this all the time, right? Mm -hmm. When we see videos that other content creators are creating on YouTube, I'm like, in our old days as blind, we would run circles around that piece of work. But in our new form, we're not putting the same energy and effort. And why is that? We kind of have to address that as a company. And why is that? It's because if somebody else isn't cracking the whip on us, we go into cruise control. Or perhaps it's, because we've been so tainted by the experience that the association of doing high quality motion design work where you put in all the effort and energy leaves a bad taste in our mouth. So that's something that we're still going through right now. But we're actively asking these kinds of questions and very self-aware that this indeed is happening. Now, I want to give you an opportunity to tell folks, what's, what's the dream behind Oh. the future because I can I can of course take a guess at it but mm -hmm. I would just love to hear you sort of say it in your own words okay I'm gonna paint the dream and and I'm a big believer in you have to shoot for the stars and you might hit the trees but you you got to just aim real big in terms of your long-term vision I, I was listening a bit from Tony Robbins said most people make too big of one you know, like your one year goal is too big and your 10 year goal is too small. My 10 year goal is ginormous. So let's just start there before people <laughs> okay. are like, this guy is on some kind of medicine right now, okay? 
My dream for the future is that we are able to teach the world that no matter where you're from uh, and how much money you can afford, there's something in there for you to help you pursue your path. And it's not just for design, it's for all kinds of education. Now, right now, we start with design, we start with business philosophy, mindset, those kinds of things, because that's our audience, that's what we know. What we hope to do is be able to create some kind of hybrid learning platform where it's the best of all worlds and it's the most affordable thing and the most lucrative thing for teachers to want to teach. And in doing so, I believe honestly in my heart that we will disrupt education as it exists today. I'm talking about traditional brick and mortar systems that have been going along the same route for the last hundred years. We're going to change that. Wow. And so how, how has your experience been so far? Because it, from what I have been able to just sort of observe from a distance and, and you know, being your friend and hearing some of the, the progress so far, it sounds like you set some early goals, but you pretty rapidly exceeded those. What's mm-hmm. that been like? What's that been like? I have to pinch myself sometimes, Joel. I would think so. We we look at our numbers like, you know, it'd be great if we could do that. And then we actually do that and surpass that. I'm like, what is going on here? I didn't even get it. So let me just share this one little bit to put things into context, okay? I have close to 200 members in a private Facebook group who agreed to pay me somewhere around 150 bucks a month. And I say to my wife, if you just if we just live off that, I think that's about $30,000. $30,000 a month in passive income where I get online and I do a 2-hour group coaching call with this group and we don't have to do another thing in our lives and we can live anywhere in the world. And that's pretty amazing. And I don't take those moments for granted. I keep thinking, "Wow. I I just don't want to abuse the fact that these people see value in being part of this and I want to continue delivering value to them." And so that's just one little sliver where you have to sit back and say, you know, if you live almost anywhere except for the United States, $30,000 a year would be a phenomenal living. We know people in Egypt that if you do $4,000 a year, you're king. Maybe (laughs) 8,000 or 10,000 in the Philippines. And that's what we do in a month on one product, right? So it, it has exceeded my goals. Yeah, I mean, what I really appreciate you hearing from you, because I've been hearing more and more of this over the past couple of years, is this appreciation and gratitude that, wow, this is actually happening. Mm-hmm. And you kind of bring it back to value, because it's really not about your celebrity. It's not about your ego. At the end of the day, what's interesting is that apparently there's a big bunch of people that are receiving adequate or even more value to continue and to participate. And they probably give you all kinds of thank yous. You know, it's the double mm-hmm. thank you. Yes. Hey, thank you for, thank you for being my, you know, my fan, my follower, my subscriber. And they're like, no, thank you because you've given me so much value. Mm-hmm. Do you get a lot of appreciation from the people we do. in those groups and stuff? Cause I know you guys get some pretty amazing feedback. Yeah, we do. And it, it's not just, um, in, in messages, they send me physical things and I open it up and I read the letters and I'm not an emotional guy, Joel. I mean, I was at one point, but I've kind of gone a little cyborg, but I read these <laughs> letters. I'm like, oh, oh, am I, am I tearing up right now? Reading like black pieces of ink on a page? Like what is going on? And then I hand it over to my wife. I'm like, honey, don't read this. Cause it'll make you cry. Cause my wife cries at anything. Right. He goes, whatever. Yeah. She reads it and she's in tears. She's like, honey. And she looks at me in a different way. Like, the impact that you're making on the lives of complete strangers is profound. And 
that's a big responsibility and one that I'm not going to take for granted. Now, here's a little story I'm going to share with you that's just a recent development. So we put out the casting call for Young Guns 2, and there was some complaint, and rightfully so, that it was all dudes, all guys. Mm-hmm. And that's because eight people applied, and they're all guys, and that's who I got, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. So here, my editor pulls me aside. He's like, Chris, we have 37 submissions for Young Guns 2, and they're all women. And they're like, are they all good? He's like, yes. How are you going to decide? I'm like, I don't know. So now we have the the painful process of hearing their stories as they testify to the impact that we've made on their lives. And it's gut-wrenching just to listen to some of these things. And I'm like, how can I say no to that person? Mm. This one woman from Lithuania said to us that she has quadrupled the median income of people living where she lives, doing what she loves, and she attributes all of that to us. And I was like, what? Okay. (laughs) So instead of taking on, you know, four young guns, like I'm going to have to like 44, like how do I even decide now? It just, and I just, just listening to them speak right into the camera, people I've never spoken to in my life that I may never possibly ever see, but to know that from all corners of the globe, from India to Singapore to, to Ukraine, there are people watching our channel, young and old, that we've made an impact on their lives. And I got to tell you, if being wealthy is defined by the smiles that you create in your life, then I'm a billionaire already. (laughs) Well, I'm remembering a moment that I can share. I think publicly, you won't mind me saying that when you and I actually first kind of got to hang out at the motion conference, Mm -hmm. and this was, I think maybe five years ago. And I remember you were speaking at the conference and it was a big deal for you like there it was yeah it was like this because the i think if i remember correctly the topic that you were talking about like there was some emotion and some energy mm-hmm. behind it it wasn't just you know here's how to crush it in the design world or right. something and for you is this um like a cathartic i think experience for mm-hmm. you and again i don't i didn't know you well enough at the time but I, I look back and i wonder if that was almost an inflection point for you because you kind of you know, bared your soul and it was brutal and hard for you. But then you were affirmed by so many people that saw that talk and said, whoa, this matters. Like he, Chris is passionate about this. He really actually feels deeply about this. And I'm curious if, if in a way is the transition of, you know, your, your focus being on blind to your focus now shifting to the future is there even some, gosh, I'll just say pent up, uh, some dreams that were maybe never realized, or there was, uh, you know, frustrations and disappointments because there was a, the death of a, a dream that is now coming to life in the future. And as mm-hmm. that happens, that's where this emotion, right? This is why it brings tears to your eyes. Uh, could you, is there, is there any truth to that? There is a lot. And let me see if I can't uh, unpack all that stuff. I the, My motion conference was very unique in a lot of different ways because I was still not used to doing public speaking. But this one presented all kinds of challenges because the event organizer, Elaine, really wanted us to memorize our talks. And I, I don't do that. It's not since junior high that I've memorized something, right? Yeah, and right. an 18-minute talk that you have to memorize in front of your peers when you still have heavy set doses of imposter syndrome, you got to overcome that. And we were told that we'd have a vanity screen, so our notes would be there. But 
I don't have great vision and that monitor was small. So all the things were conspiring <laughs> to say like, you know what, you're screwed, kid. And, and I'm going to add one other layer on top of that, which is, or two layers. One, one other layer is that uh, we weren't allowed to change our slides. And I'm notorious for working on my slides up until the very last second. Because from a motion background, it's all about the transitions between moment to moment. Of course. I remember right? how painful that was to build, yeah, creating yeah, a Yeah, so you sit there that. and you polish and like, no, that's not flowing. And how, how do I go from this story to that story? So you work on it. But we had to submit it just because that's the requirements. And lastly, I was up all night, like nights before, trying to help a friend of mine, Karen Fong, through her talk. So I was in her room on the floor rehearsing with her to four in the morning. <laughs> I forgot so, about that. Yeah. So there's a lot going on, right? And and we can see it. We can see that for the majority of presenters, this was like a one-shot deal and it was a big deal emotionally for them to do. And I could share that pain and the suffering with them. And so when I got on stage, I went into autopilot mode because at this point, I think I had remembered what I needed to remember and I told the story. And the funny thing is, a lot of times when I do talks, I black out. Like, I have no idea if I said anything. <laughs> and then I'm done. And I say the last line. And then I look around the room. And there were some tears in the audience. Like, I wasn't expecting anybody to get emotional. But I'm just kind of telling you my struggle. And that, and then people came backstage and gave me a hug. It's like, wow, okay. So this was a big transition point in my life. Because in the one hand, I had spent the majority of my life making things for other people. And I wasn't there yet, but I was on that journey towards making things for myself and for the people that I can, can benefit. So a lot of it was about, in my old life, accumulation of things, awards, projects, brands, money, fame, maybe mm. freedom. Mm -hmm. But the big shift, and I think that was just the beginning of a new arc for me, was now it wasn't about me, it was about other people. How can I be a better teacher to help people that don't have access, who aren't as privileged to live where I live and to see the things I've seen. I'm, I'm doing it for them. And that's where it gets really emotional. This is so interesting. And I appreciate you sharing that because what I'm hearing is in a way, maybe all of those years of running blind, again, great, very valuable, learned a lot, a lot of successes and so forth. But in a way you, you, at some point you almost got it out of your system and once sort of those expectations, obligations, all the shoulds were satisfied, you were ready for your next chapter. Like I've kind of gotten all that out of the way. Yeah. And now, now I think I can actually focus on something that's more, it sounds like it's more, a lot more meaningful to you. Yeah, it is. And, and the reason, like you said, it was at the death of a dream and now you get to live that. And I was thinking about that. I was having a conversation with a friend in Las Vegas and he was like, Chris, I'm seeing something wonderful that's happening for you. It's like, how do I have that thing? So over dinner at a kind of a shishi French place, French restaurant, we were sitting down literally the, the, the cliche napkin. I'm drawing this diagram out for him and outlining a structure that later on became one of my talks called Finding Your Superpower. The reason why I'm happy, fulfilled, and passionate doing what it is that I do and have purpose and meaning in my life because I figured out all the parts of me that make me, who I am, and I'm able to bring those things to the surface. So what do I mean by that? So when I was a teacher, I taught. And I, I got a lot of positive feelings about that because I was making an impact on people's lives. But it was 7 to 12 students every semester. And I definitely was not being compensated well for it. So you do it because you love it, but you're not going to make money. On the other hand, while running blind, 
I, I had the professional accolades. I was making money, but it was just kind of soul sucking because you make something and they may or may not like it, but this thing that we make, this disposable art goes away and nobody in the real world cares. Nobody sits there and celebrates like, oh, that was a really good commercial that you did. Nobody cares because you're out there to sell something. And the whole process is brutal and it can be somewhat uh, cutthroat and, and very demeaning sometimes with certain clients. And that's rough. So on the one hand, I can make money in art. On the other hand, I can make impact but no money. I was just trying to find a way to bring those two worlds together. And what you're seeing for me here in 2018 in December is more of a truer manifestation of all the parts of me. Now, I have to tell you, I'm a really introverted person. I've grown up most of my life just wanting to disappear, literally, just like, please don't see me. I look to, to the ground so nobody can say hello to me because I don't want, know how to say hello back to them. And now I'm able to, to have this conversation with you in somewhat of a coherent manner. And I'm able to talk about my experiences, my life, and be totally vulnerable in front of you and your audience. And that's super empowering. Because I think what we're doing is we're running around hiding all the parts of us that we're ashamed to share with the world. And now I get to do all that. I get to talk about comics and typography and video games and movies, all the things that I love. I get to yell at people and it's just, and they want it, you know? <laughs> right. And it's like, it's Bring like the you. Heat. Yeah, it's like you coming to the surface finally. And that feels really wonderful. And I didn't realize later that somebody told me this whole finding your superpower thing is a Japanese concept called Ikigai, where the four circles of your life overlap into a perfect Venn diagram in the middle is when you found Ikigai. So this is really inspiring me to ask a deeper question. Please. And this could be like our, maybe this is, if we can answer this question, I think we'll have- Oh my God, now I'm scared. We'll wrap up um, with, because this will be like the piece de resistance. <laughs> no, I- so here's what I'm hearing, of course, is I, as you're saying all this, I'm like, yeah. man, I can so relate. I can so relate. I can so relate. And it's making me ask this question. So I ran Impossible Pictures for 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. And you've, you've run blind now for 23 years and, yeah. and, and you're transitioning into the future. Of course, I'm transitioned into RevThink. And it's actually a very similar story, right? Right, right. We, we both have taken a career and almost a lifetime and we've we've evolved it and converted it into something and what's interesting of course is that the reason i can so relate with your journey is similarly man i get to get up every day and help people yeah. and teach people and advise people and so my life as a consultant is actually far richer and more meaningful uh not taking anything away from what i did as when i ran my studio and so here's the million dollar question. What's our encouragement to our brothers and sisters out there who are the owners running a motion design studio or, or a production company? What's, you know, like, what's your encouragement to them when they step back and realize they actually have a career that goes way beyond just the business that they're running today? Mm. I can answer this question, I think. So if I answer this question, is there a million dollar check coming to me, Joel? Well, you wouldn't be Chris if you weren't asking me that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You guys that are listening to this, you let Joel know if I've answered this question or not. This exactly. is the million dollar, the proverbial million dollar question that I'm going to try my best to answer. <laughs> Go. To our motion graphic sisters and brothers out there who are either working in the industry, working in studio or running your own firm, however big or small it is, 
This I have to say to you is that for so long, we've been programmed hardwired to do work for others, to serve our masters. And it's like one of these things from Game of Thrones, and I'm going to geek out a little bit, where it's like we have to kill the masters. We are living in a time and age where we don't need the gatekeeper, the middle person anymore to let us in to the room where we can feast on whatever it is that we're doing. If we take the talents, the ambition, and the drive that we so cheaply sell to others, and we use some portion of that talent and that drive, that motivation to create things for ourselves and build community around what we do, and hopefully we enrich other people's lives in the process, we can be the masters of our own destiny. We can write our own book. And I think that's where the real power is from. So whenever I go and speak, if they ever let me start a conversation around this, you will see me fired up in ways that you normally don't because I'm so passionate about this. And it's a hard message for people to hear because if all your life has been designed to please others, and that's really what you're doing, you're saying to the client when you pitch, will you pick me over those others? Mm -hmm. And then when you show them a frame, do you like this? Is this good enough? I can do better if you want me to. We have to change that dialogue because we have platforms like Instagram and YouTube and you can create content and you can create your own story and be the artist that you were meant to be, to share your perspective and your lens with the world and invite them in. Share your process, share openly, transparently, be very generous with what you do and stop thinking that somebody else is going to steal your thing because it ain't happening because only one person can do the thing that you do and that's you. Man, I, I love that because you and I both hear this phrase all the time. My clients won't let me. It's like everyone is stuck waiting for permission, right? Because until there's a client that has a check, I I'm stuck. And it's, I'm hearing you say, no, you're not. Like you can invest a piece of your time, energy, passion, motivation into something that's going to create a much bigger, longer term value. It's going to involve other people. It's going to make the world even a better place. And I, I just love the optimism behind that. So mm -hmm. uh, thank you for, thank you for preaching that gospel out there, <laughs> if you will. Joe, can I add one little part to this? The addendum to what I just said. Yeah, go. Because I don't want somebody to listen to this like, yeah, yeah, whatever. A big hoo-ha, spiritual kumbaya, let's do it, rock and roll. Let's talk business. Because I wouldn't be me either if I didn't talk business, okay? I, I remember distinctly about six months ago, maybe a little bit longer, Matthew, Greg, Ben, and I were sitting in a room. We're like, we need to generate $200,000 of business because we, uh, we have a financial gap to fill. And immediately my reaction is like, okay, everybody call your contacts, email former clients, let them know we're available, we have time. And that's when Matt looks at me, he's like, Chris, are we investing our time and energy into the right path? I'm like, what do you mean? Well, you're saying like the service industry is kind of be on its way out. Shouldn't we spend our energy into the future and make things that we know will pay dividends today and tomorrow? And he, he kind of just stopped me in my tracks. And I, I want to say if you, you're an entrepreneur, a CEO, boss kind of person, I think you have to be able to sometimes stop and check yourself when somebody brings you a better idea than the one that's in your head. So he said, Matt, you're absolutely right. I say, okay, everybody, how long would it realistically take you to reach out to all your contacts? And everybody's like, we could be done today. In fact, only a few hours. <laughs> our Rolodex ain't that deep, right? Right. So they all did it. I said, let's use the rest of our time creating something where we can generate some money. So we sat around afterwards and we brainstormed and we created 
this thing called the Business Bootcamp. And that thing has generated over $200,000 for us and it continued to generate lots and lots of money for us. So now we realize something. We can actually make our own client in a way. We don't have to go and beg and knock on doors and say, please, sir, will you? Now we can just make our own product and make money. And it is way more lucrative and way more rewarding than anything that you're going to do for another client. So there's a spiritual side. There's kind of like karmic equity and trying to do good for your fellow person. But there's a financial side here too. And in the short two and a half years that we've been doing this, Joel, we are going to outgrow what took me two decades to build at Blind. Mm -hmm. So by our fourth year, we will be bigger than Blind ever was in its peak. Well, I know you and I are absolutely on the same page with that. So, I mean, it, it, I, I should probably say something, you know, more provocative, but <laughs> other than just agree with you, but money, you know, should never be a dirty word for creatives because money is simply the currency of respect. And what you're saying is money is actually what allows you to make a greater impact in the world. 100%. It's, it's what funds your dream and your vision of what you want to build. So yeah, if you have, if you take issue with the business side of things, yeah. then I would just say your chances of making an impact in the world are greatly diminished. Yeah. And I think, and I say something very similar, but slightly different, that there's no cause without capital and capital is what fuels it. So a lot of people think capitalism is a dirty thing. I don't think that at all. And all we do, and I, I talked about this in a recent live stream is when we make money on a product or a course, we just take that money and we hire more instructors and we just put it right back and make more products and courses because we have a long way to go until we're able to make a reasonable, legitimate dent as being an alternative to traditional brick and mortar schools. Well, I think that's the perfect parting thought. So man, I want to say thanks for uh, spending this hour and six minutes with me and sharing your story. It's been awesome. Thanks, Joel. Thanks for having me. For more information on upcoming accelerators, events, or to learn how RevThink advises creative entrepreneurs like you, connect with us at RevThink.com. <laughs>